Thank you very much to Fiona and to Oliver for the invitation um, and to for allowing me to present this work on tragedy in the imperial period. Uh, I've slightly changed the title from the title I gave, which talked about uh, late antiquity meaning early Christianity, because I don't think we've got time to go that far. But I will, will be mentioning one, at least one of the Christian authors. Um, this is also a chance to step beyond my comfort zone, which is pantomime and mime, into tragedy, which is quite a minefield when it comes to the imperial period. So I'll be very, uh, very grateful for your comments and reactions. This is giving me a funny message. I'm starting, though, as you can see from the handout from Lucian's dialogue on the dance about the pantomime. When he comments on the grace of the pantomime dancer's entirely gestural performance, Likinos, the main speaker in Lucian's dialogue on the dance, draws a striking and disconcerting portrait of the tragic actors of his day. This is passage one. What an odious and terrifying spectacle is a man dressed up to give him a disproportionate height, mounted on high shoes, wearing on his head a tall mask with a gaping mouth so wide it looks as if he's about to swallow up the spectators. And Lucian is comparing the traditional tragic mask with its wide eyes and mouth to the pantomime mask with its closed mouth. This is the passage that allows us to identify these pantomime masks with their closed mouths as being that. This sketch certainly gives us a glimpse, or appears to give us a glimpse, of the costumes current in the period. This mask with its, with its wide mouth and high crown above the face, the onkos, the shoes with their thick soles, and then the padding worn around the body to balance this exaggerated height. And when he goes on in the rest of the passage to evoke the performance style of the tragic actor, Likinos draws attention to the sound and to the movement. Then, from inside, the man himself shouts out, bending forwards and backwards, sometimes even singing his iambics, and, most shamefully, making a melody out of his calamities. Where the pantomime dancer was silent, portraying the whole range of action and emotion through gesture, movement and rhythm, the actor vocalised, even breaking into song, perched on his high shoes, something that's perched on his high shoes, which you can just see in this, the ivory stuff, the tragic actor on the right, not the pet one, on the, also the, on the beautiful poster, not the pegs that go, would have attached it to whatever it was attached to, but you can just see the, the platforms here at the high shoes, in contrast to the, to the representation of the pantomime dancer. So Likinos's words are a powerful reminder that tragedy was still a familiar performance art in the second century, sharing theatre stages with the more popular and more recent forms of pantomime and mime. And he evokes vividly the contrast between the aesthetics of tragedy and that of those other forms. The singing of the tragodoi in contrast to the silent dancer, the static posture and stately movements of the tragodos, which must have been enforced and reinforced by the costume and high shoes, 
contrasted to the lithe athleticism of the dancers' leaps, turns, and dramatic changes of height. You certainly can't do that with a padded body and high shoes. Most importantly, however, this comparison that Lucian makes through his character Likinos between the pantomime and the tragic actor relied for its effect on the prestige that tragedy still retained as part of the classical canon studied in schools and as the source of a wealth of stories and linguistic forms for the common culture of the educated elite. At the same time, in criticising tragedy to the advantage of a new and controversial art like pantomime, Lucian, through his alter ego Likinos, is presenting a highly paradoxical argument in favour of the latter and, incidentally, perhaps, inviting his own audience to look at tragedy itself from a fresh perspective, re-evaluating its stylized features and its appropriateness as an art form. Uh, although, obviously, we obviously can't treat any of these visual representations as photographic representations of what was actually going on in terms of the different performance styles, What's very eloquent in these pictures is the static, the bending, but the rather static bending of the pantomime, of the, sorry, of the, tr of the tragic actor with the very vertical axis going through his body and the curve in the, of the pantomime dancer. I've given you this um, photograph, which is, which is uh, I took myself, which is more blurred than some other photographs because it's from that angle you get the sense of the rhythm, the fluid rhythm in the pantomime's, in the pantomime's body. And uh, to note for later, the pantomime is not being displayed, it being shown here as performing, but as off stage. So Lucian's comparison of what he describes as the grotesquely bending and wailing tragic actor to the pantomime dancer, thus brings together various strands of the reception of tragedy in the imperial period, up to and including late antiquity. On the one hand, tragedy remained a living performance art with its characteristic performance aesthetic. On the other hand, it enjoyed a particular prestige because of its roots in classical Athens and because of its status as a canonical genre studied in schools. And this dual existence as performance on stage and as text poured over in schools and by adult members of the elite in private characterises tragedy in the imperial period. So the attitudes I'm talking about are very definitely plural and it's difficult, if not impossible, to identify any particular author's attitude. There are, however, a range of practices and stances towards tragedy, from the habits of the grammarians and retor schoolrooms to the uses made of tragedy by elite authors, to the Christian ambivalence to tragedy as to almost all features of traditional classical culture. And throughout, we can see, I think, the impact, the effect of tragedy's dual nature as a text and as a staged performance. If the continued presence of tragedy is clear from texts, from inscriptions, and to a certain extent from images like these, it's less clear what form these performances took. We hear of tragodoi on the stage, but it's not always easy to know whether they're supposed to be thought of as soloists performing extracts, and if so, whether these are spoken or sung, or whether they're present as a member of a group presenting an entire play. 
it's not always clear either whether a particular play, play, play is classical or contemporary with the performer, except where we specifically have inscriptions talking about new, tra new tragedy or old tragedy. And in a famous passage of his essay on love of listening, which is number two on your sheet, Dio Chrysostom notes that in tragedy, unlike comedy, only the iambic sections remained in his day. And he compares what's left, the surviving parts of the play, to the bones and muscles of a body that are left behind after the softer parts, the lyrics, have rotted away. We, even so, we can't take him too much at his word because the, uh, the one inscription at Aphrodisias from the sec dated the second to the third century does record a prize for a tragic chorus. <laughs> but how quite one um, um, puts all this evidence together to, again, to understand what was going on is is less than clear. Arguably, though, and what's clearer, is that the function, at least the function that later 20th century approaches assign to tragedy in classical Athens, had been taken over in the imperial period by other forms. Pantomime, also known as tragic rhythmic dancing in official documents, played and replayed the traditional stories of gods and heroes and investigated the limits of identity, particularly the boundaries between genders, revealing the extent to which these were dictated by culture rather than nature. A mime brought onto the public stage problems and tensions that were otherwise unsayable. And if anything, the, apl the application to contemporary society was more direct in the mime in that the settings and characters were close to the audience's experience. For the elite audiences, declamation also played and replayed in essentially agonistic settings, conflicts between families, within families, between family and city, and between con competing conceptions of duty. And all of these performance genres, like tragedy, involve their performers and audiences in the creation and reception of a fictional world into which the audiences could be drawn or fail to be drawn. The other half of tragedy's double life was, of course, as part of the canon of classical texts. And here, the reception and the concomitant attitudes are multifaceted. The lack of a specific literature designed for children beyond the Aesopic fables meant that tragedy, like, like comedy and Homeric epic, went into the mill of the schools of grammar and rhetoric and came out largely unrecognizable by modern standards. On the other hand, we have examples of the use of the texts of tragedians by writers who had gone through this education in their, in their adult, later, and later on they use it in their adult works aimed at adult audiences. And if the fact that elite education was oriented primarily towards enabling students to produce their own rhetorical compositions in classical attic rather than reading and developing reading skills for, for, their, for their own sake also affected the ways in which tragedy was used. Plays were mined for examples of Attic usage, for stories of the mythical past, which still had resonance for the Greek cities of the empire. They were also read as sources of moral exemplar, giving rise to a different kind of dismemberment from that described by Dio as happening on stage. 
two passages from Dio Chrysostom's own writings are characteristic of different strands of the reception of tragic texts in the imperial period. In one treatise, and that's passage three on your handout, Dio wrote about the different Philoctetes plays by the three major tragedians that he was still able to read in their entirety, claiming that he enjoyed the spectacle. Uh, uh, and a similar understanding that the transmitted texts were just one element of what had been a multi-sensorial performance art emerges on occasion from the ancient scholia on the plays as they make as they make attempts to reconstruct the staging. In other pieces, though, Dio uses tragedy as a source of useful sayings to be extracted and adapted to their new context. This is the function of tragedy as he describes it himself in his uh, 18th oration or letter which is, it's not on the handout, it's his address to a man involved in public life who'd missed out on an education and has asked for a reading list. And he recommends confining himself, not wasting time on all the poets, but to confine himself to Menander and to Euripides as among the um, dramatic poets, on the grounds that both excelled in the representation of character. Both are characterised as useful, ophelimos, a word that recurs twice within a few lines of this, of this piece. And Euripides is, be, is singled out as a rich source of useful maxims, gnomai, something which is borne out by the papyrus uh, evidence for education. These two passages from the same author therefore reveal radically different stances towards the text of the tragedians. In the Philoctetes piece, Dio sees the texts as traces of performances that took place in the classical past and that are recoverable to some extent through an effort of the imagination. He can imagine himself being there at the first performances and in fact even more he can compare these three plays which no Athenian was able to do at the time. On the other hand, they're a mine of information to be used in the present or to be adapted to suit the contemporary needs of the readers of the imperial period in order to become useful or felimoi, or we might say relevant. And these needs took various forms, linguistic and ethical above all, and involved reading practices that were far removed from the performance context of tragedy. Because an educated man had to be able not only to read and understand texts in classical Attic, but also to produce his own compositions. Reading tragic poetry in the school was one way of absorbing models of classical diction. At the same time, there were limits to the use of poetic vocabulary by authors. When Lucian criticises the use of poetic words by contemporary writers of tragedy, and this is, chap this is um, passage four on your handout. <coughs> Sorry, did I say history? When, when Lucian criticises the use of poetic words by contemporary writers of history, the terms he singles out are found in epic, but also in tragedy, and they're particularly Aeschylean and Sophoclean terms that he singles out when you look at the, the larger context from which this extract comes. But he goes on to associate this poetic language with tragedy in particular by comparing writers who mix this register of language with the recounting of banal actions 
to a limping actor wearing only one of the high shoes that serve to signify tragedy. The image is rich in its use of the costume of contemporary tragedy to express a register of language associated <coughs> with tragedy, both as it was written and as it was performed. And most of the effect lies in its evocation of the limping movement, like somebody limping home from a party with a broken heel, that derives its comic force from the disruption and the syncopation of the stately progress of the tragic actor. I've chosen this particular passage because the choice of image that Lucian makes here reveals the extent to which contemporary performance conditions were bound up with the reception of tragedy at all levels. In order to express a linguistic incongruity, Lucian has recourse to an image that relies on the reader's knowledge of the stylized and physically elevated style of the players. But as well as being treated as linguistic models, the texts of, the cla of classical tragedies were used as moral authorities and as a mind of information on the stories and topography of the past. As Raffaella Cribiori has noted, this approach encouraged a fragmentary, centrifugal reading, using particular terms and mythological allusions as starting points for more general discussions that did not necessarily contribute to the appreciation of the work as a whole. Uh, I won't go in detail into the types of readings that we find in the scolia, but for the, to illustrate the moral, the moralizing reading of tragedy in the schools, at the level of the grammatical schools, I uh, would just like to mention what Sextus Empiricus tells us about this when he contests the grammarians, in, against the grammarians. It's no surprise, because he's trying to show that, that the grammarians have no knowledge uh, and that gram grammar is not an art worth teaching, it's no surprise to find him accusing the grammarians of being unable even to fulfill the basic task of explaining difficult vocabulary. But his greatest scorn is reserved for the claims that poetry contained improving moral lessons. And although tragedy isn't the only genre he discusses <coughs> in this part of Against the Grammarians, the majority of his ex examples are drawn from plays by Euripides. Even allowing for a certain amount of exaggeration and bad faith on Sextus's part, it's clear that the grammarians had no hesitation in taking lines out of their dramatic context and presenting them as examples both of good grammar and recherche vocabulary and good, conduct, contact, good conduct. Sextus's objections are multiple and frequently technical. On the one hand, he says, you can't just take these sayings out of context. They're just assertions. They're not backed up by arguments, as they would be by, the, uh, by the philosophers. And one of his most effective arguments used to demolish the, one of the claims for the utility of tragedy is that if the grammarians say tragedy is useful because poetry contains expressions of morally useful sentiments, then, by the same argument, it can be said to be harmful because of other lines that express opposite ideas, deconstructing, demolishing grammatical teaching through grammatical teaching. If a character in Euripides' Aeolus rejects wealth, for example, other characters in other plays express the opposite opinion, praising wealth and denigrating poverty. 
Sextus's discussion is interesting for what it reveals about the uses made of tragic texts by his contemporaries. Their antiquity and their status as classics made them, like the Homeric poems, authorities not, on, not only on linguistic but also on ethical matters. But this status clearly came at the expense of their nature as, a, as dramatic texts. The extraction of gnomic lines from their larger context was at the expense of the unity of their source texts and entirely neglected the polyphonic nature of tragedy. From this perspective, Sextus's own approach is interesting in that his juxtaposition of opposing views from different plays goes some way, indirectly, to restoring the, plural the plurality of voices and visions of the world that is characteristic of tragedy. And I'm tempted to say that Sextus puts forward a reading which associates, which dissociates, sorry, statements by the characters from the poet's opinion. Where we certainly find this type of dissociation is in the advice given a century earlier by Plutarch in On Listening to Poetry, which was also written against the background of predominantly moralizing readings. Although Plutarch concentrated on Homer, he insisted on the importance of understanding the nature of the speaker and the dramatic situation in each case, explaining that, in their imitation of life, poets necessarily portrayed both positive and negative characters. Rather than excising or allegorizing problematic passages, including expressions of ideas that could be judged as immoral, he recommends explaining them in their contexts a technique which works better on epic, where he can find hints that the narrator is warning us about certain, uh, certain statements, like Agamemnon's treatment of crises. Tragedy, however, lacks this narrator's voice. And it's interesting that the examples that Plutarch draws specifically from tragedy are of arguments used by female characters in order to shift the moral responsibility for their own actions onto others. He cites Phaedra in Euripides' first Hippolytus and Helen in the Trojan Women. No doubt the speaker's gender made it easier, or rather the character's gender, made it easier to single out these speeches as negative exemplar to be avoided. Plutarch's approach was still that of a moralist, moved by the anxiety that young readers would be drawn inexorably to imitate actions and ideas that they read about, as was Plato. His solution, however, was to preserve the integrity of the, of the dramatic text by positing the teacher as a mediator, who was to supply the moral evaluations necessarily omitted by the tragic and largely the epic poet. Outside the direct realm of education and reflections on education, Dio Chrysostom's writings offer several examples of precisely the use of tragedy as a source of useful quotations that he mentions in his own oration number 18. It's noticeable, however, that he avoids citing lines as if they were reflections of the poet's thought and is generally very careful to specify the identity of the speaker in each case. Uh, just to cite one example, it's not on your handout, but I'll describe it very briefly. In his Oration 17 against covetousness, Pleonexia, he cites at length Jocasta's warning to her sons from the Phoenician women, which is one of the most widely read plays in the imperial period. 
In the light of Plutarch's discussion, it's interesting to note that Dio is very careful to specify the speaker and the situation, and to attribute to the poet the role of producer who brings on Ersager. He says, um, Euripides brings on Jocasta, who says, The familiarity of the play and the prestige of its author, however, did not prevent Dio from adapting the lines in question to his own needs. Where Jocasta is warning against philotimia, Dio, Dio cites the ex- extract from the speech but ex- takes out the word philotimia and puts in pleonexia, which happily just fits metrically. That this was not simply a result of poor memorization or a variant textual tradition, and that Dio was fully aware of this piece of editing and expected his audience to notice it too, is suggested, I think, by the way he organizes the quotation. He, he sorry, where he introduces the quotation with words something like this. A little quotation that goes something like this, Hutopos, as if to draw attention to his own unreliability as a source. In his use of this quotation to back up a moral point, he was very much in keeping with the common reading practices that began at the first stage of elite education in the schools of the grammarians. And his treatment of the text shows above all how the needs of the present could take precedence over the writings of the past. In the bid to to lay claim to the authority of the poet in support of his own argument, Dio feels free to adapt the text to its new context. Together, Plutarch and Dio illustrate a tension inherent in the transition from the stage, where the enunciative situation of each statement is immediately clear, to the page, especially thinking about ancient um, ancient, um, papyri and ancient uh, methods of writing, presenting dialogue on the page. And this tension is only intensified by the continuing desire to make use of the texts of the past. It's this tension that makes necessary the strict policing of reading and interpretation that we see in Plutarch, and that's reflected in Sextus's attack on the grammarians. Uh, If we had more time, I would tell you a little bit about uses of tragedy and tragic plots in in rhetorical exercises, uh, progonasmata and declamation, but just one point I'd like to make about that is that because with the move to the rhetorical schools, the students are beginning to construct their own arguments. We do get coming back into these representations, reworkings of tragic themes like Medea, um, story of Medea, for example. Uh, we do get some of the plurivocality and the different views and the interpretations of Medea's act, to take that example. Um, Theon from the first century AD gives us, gives us instructions about how to argue that the story of Medea, in, as given by Euripides, is plausible one day and implausible the next day, as with confirmation and refutation. Uh, the arguments are, f- are far away from anything that we would, uh, any way that we would read this particular tragedy. But the fact that both students taught to uh, argue both points of view both sides of the argument does reflect the ambiguities and the competing versions of Medea that we find in the play. So these uses of tragedy as a source of quotations to be plundered and reused in very different contexts appear anachronistic 
and even perverse to the modern reader. But they are part and parcel of a widespread method of reading classical texts in antiquity, by which they were treated as part of a common, common to the elite that is, cultural capital, to be adapted and used, rather than being preserved in some original state. Possession of this cultural capital allowed members of the non-Greek elites or non-elite Greeks who had acquired the necessary education to lay claim to a share in Hellenic culture and its prestige. However, these sorts of uses of text coexisted with other reading practices that did allow for the fact that the texts were originally intended for performance. And this understanding was no doubt aided by the continued presence of tragedy as well as other performance genres on the stage. It's, it's noticeable, for example, that there is this overlap between the plays that were the, most, that were the most often read in schools and those that were the most often performed in the post-classical period, Orestes and Medea falling into both categories. And in the readings in this group, as evidenced in Scolia and in other sources, like, for example, uh, Dio's comments about the Philoctetes plays, we see attempts to reconstitute phenomena beyond the words of the text. Some of the scolia, for example, show that readers were very well aware that the play scripts were part of a multi-sensory phenomenon that obeyed very particular practical constraints. Scolia comment on the sound of the voice at certain moments, on gestures, and on the qualities demanded of the actors in certain roles. Other comments draw attention to the difference between what's present in the text and what was visible to the audience in the theatre. And the opening of Euripides' Orestes presented a particular challenge in this respect. Uh, as Orestes' intermittent visions of the Furies pursuing him did not correspond to the reality within the fictional world of the play. Uh, you have an extract from Orestes' speech as part of number five, as cited by Longinus with his comment on it, uh, followed by the scolia to that same passage um, at number six. So the scolia at number six, where Orestes, to the passage where Orestes refers to the Furies using the deictic, hautaiga, hautai, these women here, explain that the poet has represented the Irinias pursuing him unseen in order to present to us the thoughts of the madman, pointing out that if the Furies were present on stage, Orestes would be sane, as he would merely be able to perceive what was real within the same fictional word, world. And this passage attracted a great deal of attention from Stoic philosophers, among others, who used, who used Orestes' vision of the Furies as an example of a particular type of sensory illusion, where you see one thing, he was seeing Electra, and imagine you're seeing another. These scolia suggest how the texts of tragedies could form a basis for the type of ideal imaginative reconstruction that Dio alludes to. Readers clearly understand the plays as traces of theatrical performances, and their understanding of them is surely informed by their familiarity with the continued performance tradition. But the imagined spectacle is complete in itself and dispenses entirely with the need for performance, just as Aristotle claimed should be the case. In fact, both Dio and, Arist and Aristotle seem to reflect an important characteristic of classical tragedy, 
which often evoked unseen characters and events through words alone, both in messenger speeches and elsewhere. I would suggest that such readings or internal performances thus generalise this characteristic and apply it to the play as a whole. These imagined internal performances are also, as James Porter has noted, talking about Aristophanes' frogs, an example of the classical fantasy of contact with the past. When Dio claims that the spectacle of the three Philoctetes plays that he enjoyed was superior to anything that could have been seen in ancient Athens, he is placing himself imaginatively on an equal footing with a classical Athenian audience, able to judge between the performances. And he also simultaneously displays the ability to control the past that his knowledge and chronological distance from it confer on him. A slightly different form of this imaginative engagement is to be found in the treatise on the sublime attributed to Longinus, who is imperial whether one dates him to the first century or the third century CE. Longinus discusses tragic examples in his chapter on <coughs> fantasia, which he defines as the capacity to imagine and transmit the resulting mental image to an audience through enargea. Longinus is highly appreciative of the tragic text's ability to achieve the sublime by transporting its readers in imagination to the times and places of the mythical past, and even to take them beyond the realms of normal human experience. One particularly striking passage is number seven on your handout, taken from the messenger speech of Euripides' lost play Phaethon, where a witness to the, to the catastrophe recounts the growing panic of Helios as he sees his son lose control of the, of the chariot in its fatal flight. Drive that way, drive that way. Ekese, uh, ekese, ela. Longinus, as is often the case in ancient criticism, Longinus simply quotes the passage and then tells you what it makes him feel. But this response is particularly interesting as he claims that this text gives access to the experience of the poet himself. Wouldn't you say, he asks, that the soul of the writer has mounted the chariot and, sharing in the horse's danger, has taken flight along with them? For otherwise, if it had not been carried along running beside such deeds, it would never have imagined such things. In a very similar way, Going back to passage five, he claims that the, the cries of the Madarestes are proof that Euripides had seen the Furies himself. Autos eden erinias. Whereas the Scolia, number six, to the same passage, draw attention to this poet's aesthetic choices. He is the subject of Hypetheto Paregagen. Longinus sees Euripides as a conduit which allows access to the, to the events depicted. What's more, he proposes his own reading as a means of sharing the poet's experience at the moment of composition that is thus placed on almost on a par with the mythical past. Access to the texts of classical tragedy thus made it possible for the expert reader, like John Longinus, to bypass the performer entirely and to gain access to two different strata of the past the mythical past of the events depicted and the classical past of the moment of composition for Longinus and the moment of first, comp uh, first performance for Dio.
This does not mean, of course, that tragedy was no longer a living performance, but instead reflects the desire among these elite authors to do away with the contemporary tragic actor with his bodily presence, in the same way as Dio conceived of tragedy as free from the soft flesh represented by the choral odes. Dio is, of course, referring to present-day performances which put on stage what he describes as the hard, sinewy, muscly, bony remains of the plays. But his choice of image reveals a desire to remove the body and perhaps the sensory impact that must have been particularly intense in the case of choral song and dance from the communication between poet and reader and spectator. Most often, where the actor is thrown back into the mix in these texts, it's as an element which, rather than facilitating the contact between audience and poet, perturbs it. For Dio, in the passage, uh, this is going back to passage, um, passage two, where he discusses the loss of the choral odes in contemporary performances, the words sung by the actors and he's talking about both about comedy and tragedy here, have been composed by wiser men than the men of his own day. Immediately before this, he'd praised the fornaire and lexis of actors in comparison to that of contemporary sophists who improvised. On the surface, Dio is arguing for the superiority of the actor who transmits words written by wiser men from a better era. Men who, what's more, had free time to reflect on their compositions and didn't just improvise them as the sophists did. The actor, however, merely voices the text. And in other contexts, the figure of the tragic actor as reciter of the words of others has less positive connotations. Just one example is in our very first passage from Lucian's On the Dance, which ends up by talking about how the tragic actor is only responsible for voicing the words, words which were, the, which were composed by, by poets writing a long time previously. Dio puts a positive gloss on the actor's ventriloquizing function as part of his argument against contemporary sophists and orators. And it's tempting to see a potential critique of imperial sophists running, between, running beneath the figure of the actor elsewhere, too. The charge of merely speaking about the deeds of the past and repeating the words of better authors could easily be applied to the sophists themselves, given that they devoted so much time and energy to composing and performing speeches set in the distant past. But to return to the tragic actor for a moment, the gulf between him and the tragic poet, the better man who'd written his words, appears very clearly in a passage of Diochrysostom's Euboicus. The speaker of this oration includes tragic and comic actors among with the, among with, along with mimes and dancers, among the professions to be excluded from his ideal city. But he makes it very clear that the poets are not to be excluded. By ex excluding the tragic actors, allows the classical poets to be reintegrated into Dio's ideal city. So 
Intellectuals could claim to reenact tragic pop plots and even whole classical productions in their minds, bypassing entirely the paraphernalia of the stage. The image of the actor, by contrast, brought with it associations of exaggeration, grotesquerie, and incongruousness, which consequently can attach to the idea of tragedy as a whole in certain contexts. In both Dio and Longinus's imaginative reconstructions, whether of the actual events in the case of Longinus or the performance of the, of the original play in the case of Dio, in both those cases, the act of reading abolishes radical differences in time and place and allows the inconvenient constraints of chronology and of the material conditions of performance to be bypassed. In all the cases, the figure of the tragic actor is excised, and when it is evoked, it's most often as a jarring symbol of distance and dissonance. Here, it is interesting, this is my one um, Christian author, Tertullian, in the, rather than imagining a, an ancient tragedy, he imagines a bonfire of the vanities at the end of his piece, on the uh, end of his um, polemic against the spectacles. And one of the crowning points of his bonfire is the moment when the tragedians are thrown on it. And that is when they will be all the more worth hearing and no doubt more vocal in their own suffering, in sua propria calamitate, meaning that normal circumstances, they are vocalizing somebody else's calamity. The use of the tragic actor in particular to illustrate the idea of the unbridgeable gap between external appearance, the role played, and the true nature of the player is ubiquitous in imperial literature. It's even there in the Lucian passage when he talks about the, uh, the actor himself from inside this costume shouting out. Although these comments can be made of most actors, the tragoidoi are often singled out for the contrast between the inside and the outside, and often in terms of the difference between their social status and the grandiose style of costume and acting and the high-ranking characters they played um, on the stage. As Lucian himself says in his Apologia, actors who on the stage are Agamemnon, Creon or Heracles become mere hired tragic performers, hypomistoi tragoduntes, subject to public humiliation once they remove their masks. And just after the passage which is number one on your sheet. I should have carried on and given you this bit, but I'm afraid I didn't. Uh, it's immediately afterwards. Lucian notes a further incongruity between the singing of the tragoidoi of his age and certain of the characters they played. He describes this, the use of song to depict characters like Heracles as a form of solecism. It's all right to speak as Heracles, but to sing in these mellifluous tones is a performance solecism. Again, this is part of the praise of pantomime that is Lucian's aim in this work, but it is very interesting and revealing to compare the emphasis on the lack of identity between the tra tragic actor and his role, whatever the cause, with the widespread view that the pantomime dancer became merged with his role, becoming, or almost becoming, feminine when he took on feminine roles, for example. 
Defenders of the dance draw attention to this difference when they point out that tragic actors also play female roles without attracting criticism and asking, therefore, what is the problem with pantomime? The problem, I think, must be attributable at least in part to the force of the dancer's bodily mimesis, which created the impression that he was the character whose actions he did not just portray or speak, but who, which he executed through the bodily mimesis of the dance. The tragic actor, by contrast, remained present in the performance and failed to achieve the merging with the character that is ascribed to the pantomime. And it's, it's extremely revealing, I think, too, that, uh, to go back to, our, to those two statuettes, what's very typical about these is that the tragic actor is shown in the moment of performance with his mask on performing. Pantomimes are almost never shown like that. They're shown off stage, holding their masks. Where they're shown performing, they're probably to be seen in representations of what we think is the mythical subject matter. As soon as, it's like um, the pronomous vase, as soon as the pantomime puts his mask on, he becomes the character. There is no pantomime in performance. So the pantomime's body entirely replaces the text while that of the tragic actor seems to serve as a conduit that remains essentially strange to the text and its words. The sense of incongruity attaching to the tragic actor and the enhanced cognitive dissonance that it entailed led to two different types of response. One is to be seen in the expressions of fear surrounding tragic actors that emerge in, the fa in famous anecdotes, including one in Philostratus's Life of Apollonius of Tiana, it's 5.9, talking about an actor who caused panic among the inhabitants of Hippola when he opened his mouth. They were fine. They were, they were slightly scared as when he went on stage in his high shoes and his impressive costume, but they fled in terror when he opened his mouth, as if they were being shouted at by a demon, Hupodaimonos. The point of the anecdote is ostensibly to show how uncultivated these particular barbarians were. But the feeling of terror at the spectacle of the gaping mask is also present in Lucian's image of the mask's open mouth in passage one, the open mouth capable of swallowing up the spectators. The juxtaposition of Philostratus's terrifying Tragoidus with Lucian's ironic portrait of the grotesque tra uh, tragic actor as a foil to the dancer brings out their common traits, a sense of the incongruity that can lead either to anxiety or to laughter. And Lucian elsewhere in his corpus, in places I haven't got time to, to go into, makes a great deal of use of tragedy and the tragic and tragic actors as sources of comedy, like, like in his limping tragedian in the, um, on how to write history. In conclusion then, these examples this example show how the values that could attach to theatrical performance of all types often emerged in high relief in the case of tragedy. The gap between reality and fiction was all the more acute when the jobbing actor took on the roles of kings and heroes. And the feeling of unease that can be provoked by the mask at any, in, in any case was most acute in the case of the tragic mask with its empty eyes and gaping mouth.
As these examples suggest, the particular complexity of the reception of tragedy stemmed from its double life, the coexistence of classic texts with a continuing performance tradition involving both reperformances of old tragedies in new ways and entirely new compositions. The ancient texts in themselves set in motion a multi-leveled a multi-leveled interaction between the imperial present and different moments in the past, the mythical historical past to which the characters and events belonged, Phaethon in his chariot, the classical past which itself was partly heroised in the imperial period, during which the plays were originally composed and performed. And it was their classical provenance that gave the tragic texts their authority as linguistic and ethical models. But the same provenance gave rise to a gulf between the extreme situations and transgressive acts which formed the centre of tragic plots and the needs of the present. The elite authors of the imperial period were also, no doubt, made uneasy by the fact that tragic actors shared with them the ability to declaim impeccable Attic Greek in public, the phonair and the lexis mentioned by Dio as superior to the sophists and their improvisations. The negotiation of these multiple gulfs was, was fraught with difficulties. The use of classical tragedy as an ethical model involved considerable interpretative effort on the part of the grammarians who needed to stand guard between the young readers and their texts. The only safe tragedy in this context was the disembodied fragment extracted from its dramatic context and safely embedded in a moralizing interpretation. It is striking that in so many of the sources from the second and third centuries AD, the sense of distance and incongruity attracting to, attracted to, attaching to tragedy was projected not onto the text, but onto the figure of the contemporary tragoidos, aided by the effect of estrangement created by the appearance and performance style of these artists. Readers of the texts preferred to emphasize the sense of proximity they achieved, both to the narrative content and to the original classical moments of composition and performance, once the actor, with his inconvenient, wailing and stiffly bending body, was removed from the equation, and once the bodily senses were replaced by their internal mental equivalents. In so doing, the, the educated Greek-speaking spectators, in inverted commas, like Dio, were creating their own imagined community with its own very particular rights of access, distinct from the communities brought together in the noisy, material and bodily theatres of the empire. Thank you.